0: one. I'm going to read verses 12 through 17, and then we're going to just begin to do what we always do, take a concept and break it down and begin to understand why is it important to understand this idea, to understand this thought. We're dealing with John Bunyan's The Dusty Parlor, and I have added the frame Law and Grace, and, and, and John does a lot of explaining of the difference between the two and how they work. and truth. Now, John bear witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh before me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received and grace for grace. Here's our text, but we'll close at verse 18. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared, made known, revealed. Verse 17, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Can you bring my volume down a bit, please? Um, So if you have your outline in front of you, and by the way, um, when you make some more copies, can you bring me up one? No, I have one right here. Um, We are in the... Segment called the Interpreter's House, and the Interpreter is working with Pilgrim to help him understand the nature of the Kingdom of God in what we might argue a sequential fashion. And we are at that second phase of the sequential fashion of the seven frames. We've dealt with <clears throat> we've dealt with the faithful minister, frame one. We dealt with the uh, passion. And patience, boys of frame three. We are back now on frame number two, which is a very interesting frame. I think we'll get two, three studies out of it tonight. We'll build a frame around it and then dig deeper into it uh, on Wednesday, tomorrow night, and then on Friday as well. In this particular context, what John gives us is a term called the parlor, and if you know the narrative, if you're aware of the way the narrative is framed, what, um, what Christian says is that the interpreter takes Christian and leads him into a very large room, a very large parlor. Now, before we get into the nuances of the categories called Law and Grace, I just want us to kind of think for a moment. We're dealing with optics. We're dealing with visions. We're dealing with narratives. This is a storyline, so this is an allegory. And the first thing that Bunyan wants you to capture is that what he is, what Interpreter is doing with Christian is taking him through his home. He's taking him through his home. And what that means is that Christian now has access to some of the Nuances and particulars of the kingdom of God as he is to understand it. The first room he was taken into was a dark room that required light. And when once the light was shown in the dark room, what he saw was a picture. And on that picture was a man with whom there were multiple categories of descriptions about him. We know him to be what? The faithful minister. And then he took Christian into another room. That was our third segment. We should be on that now, but we'll make sense of that in a moment. And then he brings Christian to the parlor. This was a large, very large room. In contradistinction to a very small room wherein was passion and patience. If you recall, passion and patience was in a small room. So here we have a contrast between a small room and a large room. Now that makes some sense when you understand that you're in somebody's house. And it also makes sense on a theological level that the idea of understanding how our hearts work in relationship to um, worldviews and ideas that become important and ideas that constitute both time and eternity. Those were the categories, if you know. Passion represented men who were involved in the world that presently is, and patience represented men who were caring about the world to come. Those two theological categories I bridged, and I told you we live in both worlds. We live in the world that now is, and we believe in the world to come. That's what a Christian worldview is. A Christian worldview understands that we live in a physical dimension that doesn't constitute eternality. It is a bridge between now and eternity, but that upon death, we transition into eternity, whether in the favor and presence of God or whether in the disfavor and wrath of God. One is called the eternal life and the other one is called eternal damnation. The one that is the world to come is filled with all kinds of promises and all kinds of blessings for people who have proper access to it. That was a very important study. I think we enjoyed ourselves around that, recognizing the difference between the carnal man and the spiritual man, recognizing the tension and the battle between the flesh and the spirit, recognizing the conflict between the old man and the new man, recognizing that the spiritual man must subdue the carnal man, if the believer is to progress and growth and grace in this life. That makes sense, right? You know, all kind of categories of scripture that help us understand that if you sow to the flesh, you sow death. If you sow to the spirit, you sow life. These dichotomies are critical to understand. These are proverbial. That's why the Proverbs would lay out, the path of the just is a shining light. But the path of the wicked is darkness. The way of of life is above for the righteous but the way of death is below for the wicked. These dichotomies are very important to understand because they are simple in terms of right and wrong, good and bad, good and evil, like we're talking about, right? Here, what, what um, and, and uh, if Ivory's still up there, bring my volume down some more, um, or whoever's up there. Here, what, uh, what Bunyan wants us to think about with the parlor is something very interesting. A parlor is not a term we generally use in this present contemporary language about our homes. When we invite people into our homes, we invite them generally into our living room. And that's what a parlor is, old Saxon language around the parlors of homes were living rooms. And the living room is generally one of the larger spaces in your home. the goal of a living room is to bring people in just enough for them to get a fundamental idea of the character of your home, not the essence and totality of it. So what John wants you and I to understand is when the interpreter brings pilgrim Christian into the parlor, he's bringing Christian into that space where people allow others to see who they are at the public level, at the public level. Let me see if I can make some categories for you. This is true. You know your body represents a house, right? That's the Bible, right? Our bodies are the tabernacle of the living God. That word is house, okay? Paul talked about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If our earthly house of this body were dissolved, 2 Corinthians 5, 2 and 4, we have a house made in heaven. So when we talk about the House of the Tabernacle, we're talking about our physical body. I'm giving you an analogy so we can drill down. Don't win, don't want you to miss the clues. A parlor is a large room. The small room in which passion and uh, patience was was more of what we would call an intimate space. When you bring people into your home, you bring them into a public arena and you bring them into the living room so that in the living room, there are all kinds of artifacts and furniture that allow them to, in comfort, begin to think about who you are, what your socioeconomic status is, what your particular cultural uh, preferences are. Your living room says a lot about who you are. Your living room says a lot about who you are, how poor you are, how rich you are, what kind of worldviews you have. If you come into my living room, what you're going to learn about me and my wife and my kids are that we are believers, that we are musicians, that we are erudites. We've got books all over the place. So you're going to learn, see atlases and you're going to see other materials. Certainly you're going to see biblical biblical, uh, theological books there. Then you're going to see artifacts from all around the world all the places my wife and I have traveled. Does that make some sense? And then, you know, you get to judge us critically as to how comfortable or not our couch is. I don't even really care that much because you ain't gonna be there but for five minutes. The metaphor, however, the metaphor is for you to understand that the parlor is the public place of viewing. What we're about to learn is as we deal with this concept of law and grace, What pilgrim, what Christian is recognizing is that he's allowed to come into the space that constitutes our public witness, our public testimony, in contradistinction to the kitchen. You don't bring people through the front door and take them directly into the kitchen. No, the kitchen is reserved for particular people with whom you have a greater and more real and deep relationship with, isn't that true? Now you may start in the parlor, which you should, or the living room, and then you're gonna go to the dining room if you're gonna have dinner. But when you go from the parlor to the dining room, you're now also now coming into a much more intimate level of communion. The dining room represents fellowship around food. Now people get to see something else about you in terms of cuisine, in terms of presentation, how well you bring people into the space of koinonia around food. Am I making some sense? That's why I'm not taking off real quick because the parlor represents our public viewing expression and showing the people that we are willing to come close enough to get to know us. We don't let them into our bedroom, our bedroom is personal. And so it is with our walk with Christ. There are areas in which people don't have access to you unless you're a dummy. Am I making some sense? Right. Now, obviously, God has access to all those rooms, but not everybody else. Not a a human being doesn't have access to the deeper intimacies of my thoughts and my passions and my goings. But God does. God can hang out in every room. Okay, and and then generally in a home that's adequate, you have what is called a commons, that is a common bathroom. Like you'll have a bathroom in the hallway where people can use it. They don't generally use the bathroom in the bedrooms. Am I making some sense? What I'm trying to show you is that a home is designed to bring people into your space in degrees. And the degree now that we're dealing with around the parlor is God showing us how he deals with humanity at the public level of our expression and reputation. I wanted to drill down into that. I hope you get that. We can mess with that a little bit more um, tomorrow. But as we look at John chapter one, verse 17, when Paul, when John says, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, you can see this language in your outline. Notice what it says before we get to point number one. Bunyan's interpretation, the parlor, the parlor, interpreter, the parlor represents what? The heart of man. The parlor represents the heart of man. Now, what the heart of man really is, is the essence of who you and I actually are. What a man is in his heart, her heart, their heart, is who they are. That's what the scriptures say. Listen to what the text tells us around this. This is just a fundamental truth that you and I want to make sure that we uh, comprehend. We're in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Proverbs 4.23 says this, guard your heart, protect your heart, right? Because out of it are all the what? Issues of life. That's the inner man. This is The internal part of you and me is everything about who we are, what we're thinking, what we're feeling, what we're planning. And then, if you will, go to Proverbs chapter twenty-three, around verse three or four, because I want you to see something there in relationship to this idea as well. Before we move on, I want to make sure I, I clear this up because in a twenty-first century context, people have a wrong definition of the heart. I'm going to be reading here in uh, uh, I'm going to be reading here in Ecclesiastes chapter or Proverbs chapter twenty-three these words in verse, uh, verse 7, for as he thinketh in his heart, what? So is he. So let me give you a context. I'm going to deal with the uh, context here is verses 1 through 7. It's about two people sitting and eating. One is a king, the other is a pauper or guest. And then we're going to come up to verse 7. I'm going to explain a little bit more that when God looks at you and me, he doesn't assess us by our physical structure. He assesses us by our inner man. Who we are on the inside is who we really are. Here's what it says, Proverbs 23:1. When you sit with a ruler, when you sit to eat with a ruler, a king, a magistrate, or an authority, a boss, consider diligently what is before thee. This is the servant or the person privileged to eat with the boss. Be careful about what you are eating. Verse 2, and put a knife to your throat if you be a man given to passion. Put a knife to your throat if you're a person that's given to excess. What is he teaching? He's teaching here that if you're the kind of person that's impressed with voluptuous living, if you're impressed with wealth and prominence, a wealthy person is going to cause you to stumble. And if you don't have the discipline to be able to make sure you restrain yourself in that individual's presence, he'll pick up on the fact that you are coveting and his wares will expose you. It would be better to put a a knife to your throat. This is what Solomon is saying, by the way. Verse 3, notice what he says. Be not desirous of his dainties because they are what? Deceitful meat. Verse 4, labor not to be what? cease from your own wisdom. These are two sides of the same coin. What Solomon's talking about is something he knows. Remember, somebody asked me this last week, why did Solomon ask God for wisdom and then God gave him riches? Because wisdom and riches are not mutually exclusive. It's just that riches are dangerous when you don't occupy them with wisdom. Okay, did you hear what I just stated? They're not mutually exclusive, but most people cannot handle riches. So here's a king operating out of his authority and his fullness, and you're sitting with him and you're eating all of this gorgeous food. And what's going on in your mind? If you're given to appetite, if you're given to lust, you're coveting. And he'll pick up on that weakness and use it against you. Labor not to be rich, cease from your own wisdom. Verse five, I wanna get to verse seven. Will you set your eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves what? Wings. They fly away as an eagle towards heaven. Are we not now back at passion and pilgrim, at uh, passion and patience? So what Solomon is saying here, you can have all the wealth in the world. You're going to lose that when you die right we came into the world with nothing we're going out of the world with nothing right so cleaving to material things is not wisdom now listen to what verse 6 and 7 says proverbs 23 6 and 7 eat thou not the bread of him that has an evil eye neither desire thou his dainty meats if one really wanted to anchor this down this is what daniel uh ananiah uh azariah and Mishael. Uh, escape when King Nebuchadnezzar was going to feed them his diet, that Babylonian diet, and they said, no, we are Hebrews, we have a kosher diet, let us eat our own food and we will demonstrate to you that we are stronger and wiser than all of the satraps of Babylon. And it, and it worked, didn't it? Now, what Daniel and the three brothers was doing was proving that they were not covetous. Now, remember what I told you what covetous is. Covetousness is the vacuum of fullness, When you and I are not operating out of fullness, we are lusting, right? And so you come to the table of a wealthy man, and he has a spirit like that, and you are covetous, obviously, you now are going to be trapped by what he can give you, right? And and so this is what Solomon is warning about. Do not eat the bread of him that has an evil eye, neither desire thou his dainty meat. Verse 7, verse 7, here it is. For as he thinks in his heart, what? For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Watch this. So outwardly, he will carry a decorum that will look like he's interested in you, that there is some common ground upon which you guys may have purpose for existing. But in his heart, he may be setting you up to trap you, right? Because as Jesus said, it's out of the abundance of the heart. That a man speaks in that his life exists this is an extremely important uh, proverb around what you and I are getting ready to deal with now the fundamental nature of the heart of man the fundamental nature of the heart of man now the other thing that I want to say with that which means if you are the kind of person that has grown up and are aware that human beings are maniacal they are deceitful they are corrupt by nature and they are inclined to hurt you if you're naive right and overly simple it's extremely important for you to understand what we're about to deal with and the categories of law and the categories of grace that's why i gave you john one seventeen. how important is it for mankind to understand and know that god has a law that reckons with all of their motives and actions and deeds how important that is the other thing that i want you to think about why, that as we deal with this is that what you and I are working with is what is called the application of the gospel, how that the gospel properly employed starts with law and then moves to grace. You see this all the way through the scriptures. A proper application of the word of God starts with law and then it moves to grace. Because the condition of humanity before God, apart from a saving experience, is that humanity are sinners and as such the conversation that god has with you and me at the beginning of his dialogue with us is we're not right with god right and you see this what i want to show you now is what is called a sequence in scripture a sequential fashion why would god give you an i his law here's the reason why because he is lord he would give us his law because god is lord right? here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord, him alone shall you serve. So now if God is Lord, doesn't he have not a set of decrees that we have to follow? Right? And I want you to capture this. So when God comes with his, his, what we call celebratory summons, he's coming as Lord. He's coming as a ruler. He's coming as a king, and he's expecting you and I to do what? Obey him. Obey him. So, and the apostles put this down right in the book of Acts. I want you to see the sequence. When they came in Acts chapter 2 and explained the resurrection of Christ, here's what Peter says. God raised Christ from the dead and set him at his own right hand and made him both Lord and Christ. You guys got that? Lord and Christ. I want you to see the sequence. He's not just our Savior. That comes under the grace term but he is first our lord that comes under the law term that comes under the law term so when john says in john 117 moses gave you what the law but grace and truth came through jesus christ it's because the bible will have us to understand the relationship with hum- mankind with god is one where god is lord it's lordship So let me give you a few patterns in the scriptures before we drill down in this. Do you know when God created Adam and gave him to have dominion over everything? Do you know what the imperative was? The imperative to Adam was in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, when he says, of all the trees of the garden, you may freely eat, but this one tree leave alone. You know what that was called? That was called the law of prohibition. God's exercising authority over Adam, is he not? He's giving Adam freedom to do everything but rebel against God. So mark this, a proper comprehension of the way God deals with you and me is that God is Lord. He is Lord of all, and therefore he has a right to tell us what to do. Is that true? So in the Genesis narrative, you find in uh, 2.17, God telling Adam what to do and eve isn't present yet but when she comes on the scene obviously she's going to get those instructions from her husband is she not and then both of them are going to be operating under the lordship of god when does the grace factor come in it comes in when they sin they violate the very law that god said and in genesis chapter 3 verse 8 god says to adam where are you he's the lawgiver And he's coming after Adam because Adam has now violated his law. And you and I know now that God has come to him. The solution to their problem is going to be grace, is it not? He's going to bring a grace effect upon the life of Adam because Adam and Eve have rebelled against him. So when you go through your Bible, you're going to see these sequences. Law first, grace later. This can be seen in the Noah account. Remember what God said in Genesis chapter 6, he looked upon man and he saw that man was only evil continually, that the imagination of his heart was wicked. And what did God say? It repented me that I made man on the earth. I will destroy him. You know what that is? Law. The wages of sin is what? Right. And immediately upon giving that decree, what did God do next? He told Noah to build an ark. So what we have is law as a righteous decree of God. This is what we're learning in the Roman study, right? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth down in unrighteousness. But in Genesis 6, he also says, I'm gonna give them 120 years to repent and it would be indicated by the ark. Does that make some sense? All right, here's another model if you guys haven't picked up on it. The other model was Israel coming out of Egypt. When Israel came out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness, uh, 60 days in, what did God do? God gave them the law on Mount Sinai. This will be uh, Exodus uh, chapter 8, 17, 18, and 19, ultimately 20. And upon giving them the law at, on Mount Sinai, what else did God give them? He gave them the mandate to build the tabernacle. Why? Because the tabernacle represents the place of redemption, where sins are dealt with, where the people of God can make it through the wilderness on the grounds of the shedding of blood. If all he had given them was the law, none of them would have made it to the land of Canaan. So law always precedes grace to establish the relationship. Now, Pastor, why is this so important? Because if you go around telling people things that where they don't know God, they don't have a relationship with them. Things like smile, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You have misrepresented the condition of man and you have misrepresented the status of God in relationship to them right? And so this is also, you know, the the way that Jesus came into into ministry after his baptism. You can see this in John chapter 4. We won't go there. But Jesus came as well as John the Baptist. How did they come? They came preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So when we talk about our law grace factor, this is a sequence mechanism in your communicating to people, hey, we have a problem our problem is sin. Sin is an offense to God. This is where the parlor is about to come in at in terms of John's proclamation. So, look with me under point number one so we can kind of just work with point number one. The heart is the ground of reality as man. That makes sense, right? It's the ground of reality. The ground of reality. That's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 15. Out of the heart proceeds all manner of thought, and action and behavior the heart because god judges what the heart he doesn't look on the outward he looks on the heart he looks at the conscience. he looks at the mind he looks at the heart and so on the point number one i want us to deal with three propositions briefly mankind is a sinner from the womb now that's an offensive statement but it's necessary to be established what is the condition of mankind outside of a grace relationship with god he's a sinner Now, listen to what the Bible says along these lines, Psalm 51, verse 5. I just want you to hear it. I want you to hear it. Psalm 51, verse 5. And then we're going to pick up on how uh, the interpreter shows Christian the two parties that engage in an attempt to clean the parlor. We're going to talk about that briefly before we close. Behold, David says, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother what? Conceive me my state of being is that I share a sin nature with my parents, all right? I share a sin nature with my parents. This would destroy the doctrine of what we call the Immaculate Conception as well, meaning that Mary was not a uh, sinless person when Jesus was conceived in her womb. She was a sinner, Jesus was not. And she even stated that in her, her magnificence. She made it clear that she needed him as a redeemer. But it's important for you and you know I to get it. Look at Psalm 58, verse 3. Psalm 58, verse 3 says this about the condition of mankind from the womb. The wicked are estranged from the what? The moment that we are born, we go astray speaking what? Lies. That's right. That's our condition as human beings. This is what we call a psychological pathology. Our pathological condition is that by nature, we are contrary to God. The term speaking lies there is largely a metaphor for going astray, because either you are speaking truth or you are speaking lies. Does that make sense? And if you were to follow that parable further down, it would describe you and I as cockatrices or snakes. So we're all born snakes we're all born sinners that is a fundamental theological truth let me see if we can build upon that sub so point b he is given to lawless behavior mankind is given to lawless behavior that's his fundamental bit romans 3:23 says all have sinned is that what it says all have sinned and come short of the glory of god does it say only some have sinned right and the question is, when do we start sinning? From the womb. It's, it's in our nature. It's in our nature to sin from the womb. All of sin to comes short of the glory of God. That's the proposition of Scripture. Let's build upon that. Here's how Solomon put it in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20. This is what Solomon said. Now, Solomon was the wisest man in all the earth at that time. Here's what he said when he looked across the whole world. Now, this is what we call an absolute statement. Here it is. For there's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Now, now for him to make that assessment, he had to be under the anointing of the Spirit of God. Would you agree with that? All right. So I'm gonna do a little bit of logic with you. No man, no woman has the capacity to assess all of humanity at any one given time across the totality of the globe. You are not omnipresent. And you are not omniscient. So what gives verity and certainty to Solomon's words? The spirit of God. The spirit of God that created all of us knows us, does he not? All right, so it's important for you to know what Solomon says is that there's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sineth not. Now, if you even question that in regards to, it's possible that somebody out there has never sinned. Well, don't even go outside of this, these four walls. Stay in these four walls for a moment. And I'd love to meet the person in here who has, hasn't ever sinned, hasn't sinned in your thought. So the Bible says the thought of foolishness is sin. The thought of foolishness is sin. This is why Jesus said, if a man lusts after a woman in his heart, at the level of his lust, he has sinned. And, and what, what that means is with God, he sees the correlation between intent and action. It's not that intent and action are the same factually, they are the same in terms of root and origin. Did that make some sense? Right? It's extremely important. This is why he says, if you hate your brother in your heart, you are a what? Murderer. It's not that hate and murder are equal in action, they are equal in origin. It takes hate to murder. It takes lust to commit adultery. See what I'm getting at? And it's important to know that distinction because people cloudy up these propositions all the time. Well, if, I've, if I hated him in my heart, I might as well go head on and kill him now because, you know, I've killed him. That is a dumb <laughs> syllogism. The, the point of that proposition is for you and I to know that actions have a precedent. Actions have what we call an antecedent, and the antecedent is our motive. There is no judicial system in the world that deals with people merely on the grounds of their action. They always bring you into the courtroom, find out what the state of your mind was, affirm the motive to determine the correlation between the motive and the action, and therefore a righteous judgment. Am I making some sense? Of course, of course. So motive matters. This is why what happened with Cain, remember? Cain killed his brother Abel, and before he did, what did God do? He came to Cain and said, Cain, I see your continence, dude. Your continence has fallen, meaning our physiology will take on a reflection of our attitude and our motives and it will often betray us for what we are about to do. Again, psychologists become extreme, therapists become extremely keen on picking up these kind of uh, physiological sort of expressions, whether he's guilty, whether he's angry, whether he is naive, whether he's anxious, all of that's in the hopper now, is it not? And it makes sense because our physical body is a servant. So what you do in your body is responding to a set of commands, a set of ideas, a set of intentionalities that go on in your brain that are connected to your heart, which is your emotional makeup and your volition, right? Why wouldn't my body, the temperature rise? Why wouldn't my heart beat faster when I'm about to engage in something that would be illicit or immoral or wrong? Why wouldn't it? Because it takes that kind of collaboration with my mind and my body to act it out. It would be the same way when I'm excited about some food I'm about to eat. My heart, <laughs> starts, my heart starts beating faster, right? And so many other areas where your body is a servant and it's going to tell on you. It's important for you and I to know that. So under point number one, the heart is the ground of reality. He is a sinner from the womb. He is given to lawless behavior. Listen to how the scripture teaches in uh, Psalm chapter 34 verse 1 through 4. David saw this and I want you to capture it. I'm laying down a foundation here that's Psalm 36 1 through 4. A foundation that I want you to capture and then we can just make sure we get the gist of it before we stop. Here's what David said. Now David's a king in Israel. David's a child of the living God. David's a sinner saved by grace. He knows what it means to be simultaneously what? Righteous and what? That means he knows both sides of the bridge. This is where an honest Christian is. An honest Christian doesn't only know the righteous side. He or she must know the sinful side. Otherwise, you're going to be lying. So David, being a sinner as all other sinners, he's assessing the kingdom. And here's what he says. The transgressions of the wicked saith within my heart that there's no fear of God before their eyes." Now, notice what David just did. He assessed by their conduct that they don't fear God. Did y'all capture that? David looked out on the kingdom and saw how easy men and women lived in rebellion. That's the world I live in. That's the world you live in. We live in that same world. And if we're honest to some degree, we may be partakers of that same hardened, visceral evil that goes on repetitively in our world. Is that true? So, all we're doing here with David is agreeing that the heart of man is wicked. Listen to what he says in verse, uh, verse 2. For he flatters himself in his own eyes until his iniquity be found to be what? Boy, this is a really acute assessment about how you can deceive yourself into thinking you're all right until your rebellion and disobedience becomes obnoxious even to you. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Do you know? Right. And actually, and if you can understand that that set of mechanisms right there, you can help people. Because what David did right there was talk about how the process of self-deception can lead to an unjust flattering of yourself as if you're all right. But in reality, you're not. So that deep down inside, you actually are dealing with what we call cognitive dissonance. You are, you're fighting against the reality that's going on in you by putting up arguments that you're all right, when in fact, you're not all right, right? And if a wise believer could pick up on that, that tension in you, they can help you. Because I'd rather, uh, I'd rather help you arrest the process of self-flattery, which is a kind of narcissism and idolatry. I'd rather help you arrest that before it turns into some kind of ugly scandal. Because believe it or not, and you should know this too, so I'll just say this as a, uh, as a mode of uh, pastoral care. When you and I are struggling with challenges in our life, tell the truth. Isn't it great when God intervenes and stops you? from doing it isn't it a wonderful thing to see yourself on a trajectory of veering away from the path and you see it happening and God stops it yeah. by some providential act some event or, or some epiphany cuz i had one of the, i had one of these a couple of days ago some things were crashing in on me And I woke up early in the morning thanking God for the weight of those things crashing in because it gave me an epiphany that allowed me to alter my trajectory. I was like, thank you for that. See what I'm getting at? Right. Look at verse 3. The words of his mouth are iniquity and deceit. He has left off to be wise and to do good. These are people that are constantly uh, hoodwinking themselves. Verse 4. One more verse after this, he devises mischief upon his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not abhor evil. In other words, he's gravitating towards the evil. And you can see what he's doing. He's calculating it. He's working it out in his mind. The only thing that's left now is to act it out. And so he has to be arrested. Look at verse 5. This is our final one. Thirty-six, five. Thy mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens, and your faithfulness reaches unto the clouds. What is David doing here? Can I tell you what he's doing? He's thanking God for a merciful uh, character of intervention in his own life. So, if, if we're reading verses one through four carefully, we see a movie that's going to turn out tragic, don't we? Right. This is. This is. I was thinking about this the other day. One of the reasons why movies are so compelling is because movies lie to you. (laughs) Right, follow this, this is what they do. They lie to you in terms of outcomes. The movie may carry a whole lot of really quality, interaction, dialogue, you know, scheming, and and conflict, drama, tension, I love all that, that's fine. You know, uh, mistakes, problems, you know, pits, and, and, and all kind of traps that people are in. Almost every movie you watch, the outcome is good. That's why you watch it again and again. This didn't come home. This did not come home to you. The reason why people watch movies is because movies ultimately lie to you. They tell you, you can get into all of this crazy mess, make all these mistakes. You can be hanging off the side of a cliff. You can be swinging from the rafters of a 100-story building don't worry about it. Somebody getting ready to rescue you because this is a movie. This is not real life. Real life is messy. Real life is messy. Real life has way more tragic outcomes than mysterious rescues and deliverances. This is why we don't like to make movies completely real because it would be depressing to watch a movie over and over. And the outcome is always he died. She died. They died. They ended up on drugs. They ended up in prison. Am I making some sense? Nobody would want to watch those movies. But it's important for you and I to know that God's word does not lie to us. It will tell us our fundamental condition as human beings is that we are what? That's the fundamental takeaway. That's why the law has to be given. All right, a couple more things, and we're going to wrap this up. Under point number one, the heart is the ground of reality. As man, he is a sinner from the womb. He is given to lawlessness, and therefore he is what? Separated from God. Now, this is what I want you to capture now. Look at, look at Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2. Uh, Start at verse 1, uh, just Sean. I want to read it through. Notice what God says. He says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. Now here, what you're dealing with here is people who are wondering why God hasn't shown up to deliver them from the difficulties that they're in. I want you to get that because verse two is going to make it plain. So when, 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 the, when, the, when, when, when the prophet says, behold, the, Lord, the Lord's hand is not sharp, you, you, want his hand, you want his hand to deliver you? You want it to scoop you up and bring you out your trouble? Please know this. God doesn't have atrophy. The arm of the Lord is strong. The hand of the Lord is mighty, right? That's what the Bible says. With a lifted up hand and a mighty arm does God deliver his people. So what's the problem that you're not delivered? It's not that God can't deliver you. Secondly, he says, neither is its ear heavy that it cannot hear god's not deaf listen god's not deaf that means if a person calls upon the lord he will be heard is that true right the bible's very clear very clear about that call upon the lord in the day of trouble i will deliver you and you will glorify me like god desires to deliver people he loves delivering people here's the problem you ready when people are not delivered when people are not rescued, it's because they haven't called on God. I hear, I hear cats all the time talking about, man, I don't know why the Lord's not coming through for me, because you're not talking to him. You're just running off at the mouth. Am I making some sense? Right, because the Lord judges our hearts. He knows our motives. Right. I've raised a bunch of kids. I know all of their subtle ways. I know when they're telling the truth and when they're lying. When they're lying, I just keep doing my work. I act like I just didn't even hear them. (laughs) Right? How come? I want them to stop disrespecting me. I'm here to deliver you, but don't lie to me. So I'm not going to do anything until you come right. If your attitude is wrong, still work it. That's how God is. He's not a genie in a bottle that you can rub any kind of way with a funky attitude and expect the God to come through right away. He's never done that with any of his creatures, not even his own darling son. Not even his own darling son who cried with great tears to be delivered. And Jesus was righteous. Am I making some sense? Right. So notice what he says in verse 2. Here it is. Notice what he says, Isaiah 59, too. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God. Your, your iniquities have space between you and God. I got that? Your sins took you away. You're way over here. God's way over there. Metaphorically, anthropomorphically speaking. God's way over here. You're way over there. So, to the degree that you and I are way over here and God's way over there, don't think that you can say, God, come get me. Lord, come get me. No, God's way over there. Way over there. Way over there. You know what that means? Lord! See, hey, you ain't ready. You're not ready. When you don't call like that, you're not ready. You're not assessing the space. You're not assessing the depths of the pit. You're not assessing the, the severity of your, your trap. Am I making some sense? Yes. Between you and your, uh, but your iniquities, these are transgressions and sins, have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you. That he will not what? There it is. I love teaching the Bible because what I, what I have to do frequently is rescue the reputation of God from men lying about God being a kind of bellhop to do anything we want him to do. This is not true. Now, you guys know where we are in the Pilgrim's Progress, right? I'm going to talk about this and shut it. I got five more minutes. In the Pilgrim's Progress, we have uh, enjoyed a uh, Christian coming to a revelation that he's a what? That's where he is now. He hasn't had his burden removed yet. We've been on a long journey with that brother, haven't we, so far? And we've enjoyed every stage of his pursuit, right? Now, remember, he's being drawn by God. Is he being drawn? And that's glorious, isn't it? Because no one's coming to the Father unless the Father draw him, right? No one's coming to Christ unless there's a work by which God is methodologically and providentially working with your heart, working with your mind, dealing with your life, breaking you down, bringing you into greater revelation, persuading you of your need of God above everything. And that's what God will do. He will drag you out until you are utterly convinced that God is right and I'm wrong. Am I making some sense? So here, here our brother Christian, he's in interpreter's house. He's going to go through all seven of the frames and then go out. He still has to climb a difficult hill before relief comes. What is God doing? John chapter 16, uh, 16, verse 8. Here it is again. This is called the first work of the Spirit. This is what we'll close today, the first work of the Spirit, because this is what what John wants you and I to, to capture, what Mr. Bunyan wants you and I to capture. And when he, that is the Spirit of truth, has come, he will do what? Reprove. The world of what? Right. That's the first line. This is called the first work of the spirit. He will convince you that you're a sinner before he shows you the righteousness of Christ. That's line number two. Do you see that line number two? Like for a lot of people, line number two means nothing. The righteousness of God, which I talked about on Sunday. Did y'all get, was it clear on Sunday? The righteousness of God, the righteousness of God outside of us, in another, in his son, available to the sinner, apart from his works. But that righteousness doesn't mean anything to the sinner until the sinner agrees with God as to his sin. See, remember I told you that's a trifecta, right? That's in gambling, one, two, and three, those numbers have to strike. That first number has to be full before that second number kicks in. And so before a person can really appreciate the merits of Christ's redemption on the cross, that individual has to become persuaded that he's a sinner. That's the brother that's hanging on the cross about to breathe his last breath. Y'all remember him? He's hanging on the cross about to breathe his last breath. Him and his partner still engaging in the deceit of, of Psalm 36. Remember, they flatter themselves. They're talking deceitful. They're talking bad about Jesus. These two dudes are, are crucified right along with him. And then one brother begins to have an epiphany. Guess what he says? This man in the middle, he hasn't done anything wrong. What was God doing? He was beginning to show that thief, God's righteousness, and immediately upon that, that man says, we are justly condemned. He was able to confess his sins. And then what did he do? He applied to Christ for forgiveness. Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. So trifactor one kicked in, we're justly condemned. Trifactor two kicked in, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Trifecta three, this day you will be with me in paradise. That's crazy. Isn't that good? That's great. So, the nature of the gospel is God alone saves. And He saves by bringing men and women into a persuasion that He alone saves, that we are sinners in need of His mercy. That's why the law has to be brought first, if that makes some sense. Because until a person understands we are violators of God's law, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, the last verse, because we're here now, we're gonna take a break. Until a person is persuaded that we are violators of God's law, the righteousness, which is in Christ, doesn't mean anything. Here's what John says, whosoever committed sin does what? Transgress also the law for sin it's transgression of the law. That's how, simple, that's how simple it is, right? That's how simple it is. All a man needs to do is look at God's law, his holy law, his good law, his just law, and realize I don't keep that law. I'm in trouble with God. I need rescuing. So we're going to pick up uh, tomorrow night in our Zoom class just touch on point number one and move to point number two, the necessity for sin to be known and acknowledged. Known and acknowledged. Obviously, this is what we picked up. So we're going to take a break here for a few minutes and